0: Change is inevitable and can often be chaotic. However, when it's fully organized, change can be dynamic, powerful, and progressive. The Organizing for Change podcast will help you move from a spectator to a difference maker and will assist you in bringing positive change to your community, your city, and perhaps of most importance, you. Hosted by Amanda Decker, Drug-Free community Substance Use Prevention Coordinator, mom to many, entrepreneur, and fan of great conversation, Organizing for Change is heard in over 40 countries and every state in the USA. We are delighted that you've joined us today, because after all, we do this for you, and that will never change. Here's Amanda. Welcome to Episode
1: 34 of the Organizing for Change podcast, where our goal is to coalitions, organizations, and individuals to bring change to their community. I so appreciate all of your support. You have helped this show continue to grow into reaching people in every state and over 40 countries. If you would like to be an insider to the Organizing for Change podcast, feel free to join our email list. You will be the first to know about upcoming episodes, and you'll get a summary after each episode with links to anything we've talked about emailed right to your inbox. Just click on the link in the notes to join our community today. Today's episode features Jamia Tappan, who supports community and organizational processes that lead to stronger neighborhood partnerships across sectors, shared understanding of values rooted in equity and movement building for collective impact. Her expertise is in community organizing, advocacy, capacity building, and facilitation with a racial justice lens. Currently, Jamia serves as Community Organizing Manager with Health Resources in Action, but previously, Jamia worked in Hartford, Connecticut, empowering youth and residents around public safety concerns, housing issues, and clean neighborhood initiatives, as well as being an advocate equity in education and LGBT rights at the state legislature. Jamia holds a master's degree from the University of Connecticut School of Social Work. And enjoys art history, movies, and crocheting. Also featured on today's episode is Erica Pike. Erica believes that through listening and leveraging the strengths of individuals and communities, we can achieve positive health, education, and economic outcomes together. Her experience in public health has always been in partnership with community members valuing both grassroots-driven change and systems-level change, and investigating how the two intersect and influence one another. She now serves as the Communications and Policy Manager for the Vital Village Network at Boston Medical Center. Erica has over six years experience organizing and mobilizing campaigns, coalitions, organizations, and individuals to improve community health with an equity lens and evaluating the success of efforts. With a Master's in Applied Nutrition from Northeastern University, Erica envisions a just, equitable future that ensures the best outcomes for all children and families. This episode was fascinating, and I'm so excited that you all get to listen. Without further ado, my conversation with Jamia and Erica. Well, welcome, Jamia Tappan and Erica Pike to the Organizing for Change podcast. We're so excited to have you both on.
2: Thank you. We're excited to be here. Thanks Thanks
1: for having us. I'm super excited. I met, Jamia, I met you at a training from the Community Health Training Institute. I think it was a community organizing workshop. Am I correct on that?
2: Correct. Yes.
1: Yes. And I know that the Institute works to increase the capacity and skills of community health leaders and stakeholders to build and sustain coalitions and partnerships that support healthy communities and improve health outcomes across the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So that's kind of a little plug for that group. And we can put in the show notes that resource for anybody who is in Massachusetts that just wants to know more about that work after
2: we're done. Thank you for that. You made my life easier.
1: And Erica, I know you from a different life because our kiddos um, used to go to dance and you were in one of their dance classes. But uh, maybe if you both want to introduce yourselves and just tell us a little bit about what you do and just why you do the work that you do.
3: Sure. Thanks um, again. This is Erica, and I am a manager for a community engagement network called Vital Village. We're made up of community resident leaders, organization representatives from the social service sector, as well as institution partners. And we're all working together because we're committed to maximizing child, family, and community well-being. I do this work because I'm committed to that mission and the approach in which we get to that mission. So this work is community driven. We use trauma, trauma sensitive frameworks, and we really approach it with the idea that we all have something to learn and we all have something to share. I also identify as a white female, um, and I say that because it's really important to these spaces, when you're coming in, you're acknowledging your privilege, you're acknowledging the experiences that you have, the expertise that you come to this work with and the different lenses that um, influence the way in which we approach community organizing and community driven change.
1: Thank you, I appreciate that. Welcome Erica and Jamia.
2: So, I work for Health Resources in Action, or HRIA, which is a nonprofit full service consulting organization that works to improve population health. And we are a Boston based group, but we have a national presence, and our services include things like research and evaluation, capacity building, and grant making. And I work at the intersection of capacity building and grant making, predominantly within Boston communities. And my role is to facilitate processes and allocation of resources between hospitals in Boston and community organizations. And I also provide technical support to neighborhood groups that I work with um, to just improve their overall structure and capacity. Um, So many people also don't realize that um, I'm a social worker and not a public health professional by education. Um, And to me, that really means having a commitment and an ethical obligation to fight for social justice and for those that are most marginalized. And particularly as a Black woman, um, I really find, um, I I, I get excited about working with other people who share my identity, but also those that don't and finding a space for me to continue to grow as I accept my own privilege, as well as the many challenges that I have had. Um, And I really just enjoy challenging, you know, thinking about power and challenging those dynamics, Um, thinking about systems change and watching other people grow and understand their own identities.
1: So one of the things that I really felt like it was important to have you both on and share the space and talk about some of the things you do, it's just I'm not a big fan of watching the media because when I do, sometimes I get really down and depressed, honestly, reading some of the things that are going on out there and some of the negativity, but I, I just started thinking about our current political climate and just the work that you both do. And just, I wanted to ask you both kind of about just your feelings about how your work fits in with the current political climate. What are some of the challenges? What are some things that we really should be thinking of? Um, and
2: just what are your thoughts? So for me, I want to think about how we can create more spaces for um, people to feel included um, that centers on those that are most marginalized and where folks can have greater autonomy and sense of their own power um, to make the decisions that really impact their lives directly. So I really try to think about, you know, in my work, how can I do that? Um, And we actually use this community engagement spectrum, which there are lots of different ones, but there are millions of ways to... um, to engage with community. Sometimes it's about getting information or just like extracting things from them. And on the other, on the other, on the far end is where, um, you know, community and residents are responsible for making their own decisions and really trying to move it to that end of the spectrum where the residents have power and there's decision-making that is being led by them. So I feel that like the more spaces we can create that do that work, the better we are.
3: Yeah, similarly, um to the point of counteracting the current um national rhetoric is really to look at what we do have control over which is what what is happening on a neighbor to neighbor level so we're looking at building those trusting relationships using peer-to-peer advocacy and we're taking our time right we're not just rushing into things because that process that jamia was talking about of moving to community driven change isn't fast, it's actually very slow. Um, But the tides will change, that's what we're hopeful for. And we are doing that groundwork to uplift community leaders, build their capacity. One of the ways in which we do that is we have a credit for service model where we honor the leadership and wisdom and volunteerism that goes on and goes unnoticed often um, among community leaders by providing college level credit. So we have a partnership with the Urban College of Boston. We're looking to expand our partnerships to different community colleges around the area um, where we can build on the current skills sets of community leaders who are doing advocacy work um, in their neighborhoods by honoring that with college level credit. So we see this as a proactive approach rather than a reactive
2: so when, yeah. so that people feel like they, they are in a position to act when they need to, that they, that their voice is being heard. And if I just want to add to that, um, we also, I'm also part of a project called the Innovative Stable Housing Initiative, which is funded by Boston Medical Center, Boston Children's Hospital, and Brigham and Women's Hospital. And it's, The first time that hospitals are working together to invest $3 million over three years to um, improve housing stability for Boston residents. And this has been almost a two-year process of just planning. So that point of like, how do you get to that higher position of being really community driven? And we're still doing that and trying to do that. But the way we've laid out the, the allocation of resources, how we're going to actually Try to impact housing stability is by creating opportunities for greater community engagement where one of those um, sort of buckets of money is really focused on resident-driven processes. And I really like the fact that it centers those that are most marginalized and moving us towards that. So we're still learning together um, and the partnerships have been great. Like if you can build off the experiences of the people that are already doing things um, and, and having them be their own voice, um, then that's just a great place to continue that work. And I think this project is really trying to build on that.
1: I love that because the work that um, this podcast really targets is community coalition work, especially when it comes to substance use prevention. And I think a lot of times a small group of people will get into a room and they kind of make decisions without going out and meeting the people that the decisions are going to impact or even engaging those folks in the decision making can you talk a little bit about just how do you go about creating some of those partnerships how do you go about building those relationships where do you start
3: that's a good that's a good question um And I'm going to bring it to the the approach that we take at Vital Village, which instead of looking for problems, we look for solutions. Um, And so residents experiencing poverty, those who have uh, disproportionate experience with health issues, um, they have consistently been the research subjects where public health programming swoop in, there to save the day, come in with a with some money maybe just for a few years and then leave, but that's not a sustainable model. Um, so we really are not looking for problems. We're really acknowledging the strengths and expertise and wisdom and lived experience that already exists because those, um, I'm gonna use the phrase that representative uh, Ayanna Presley uses, those closest to the pain really should be closest to the power. Um, and if we use that approach, we can really see so much wealth, strength, and resilience and build from there. So instead of building from a place of deficit, we're building from a place of assets and a place of wealth. And and that immediately shifts the power because you're not looking at someone as if they need you, you're looking at them as if they already have so much. And that changes how you build trust. If you're going in and saying, oh, I'm here to help and you need me and you need my funding or you need this and that, um, it already feels a certain way. Mm-hmm. And so this is looking at it differently and saying, actually, I need you and we need each other so that we can all lift ourselves up out of whatever it is that we're hoping to change in our community.
2: Yeah. And I think a lot of the you know, these are experiences, these are stories, this is real life, and and it doesn't have a place. And you have to create that space for those stories and those experiences to be shared and valued to the point that they're making change. And so I, you know, just to add to what Erica was saying, I really just try to push that forward. Like I see you as a whole person with all of these values and skills that may not be valued by other people, but I want to, you know, uplift what you're doing and how can I do that? And, and into that fact, like I'm always learning how to better, to do that better.
3: Agreed.
1: Are there any specific stories or cases that kind of stand out that embody just what you were just saying that come to mind?
3: Sure. Uh, One of the, Uh, parent leaders who just graduated with a certificate in community leadership and advocacy. She came in with years of experience with a son who had an IEP that was being, so that's an individualized individualized education plan that had been in and out of different schools, um, and she wanted to really address that systemic issue within the public school system. Um, Within a year, she was then training other parent leaders to, um, in Spanish, her native language, um, to work as an IEP parent advocate. So she took her lived experience, was able to connect with a organization called the Federation for Children with Special Needs through the Vital Village Network, and now is a trainer with them um, to train other parents to address that same experience that she's been going through. What about you, Jamia? Do you have anyone
1: or any case story that just really stands out that just helps illustrate how important this is?
2: But I just think that's a great example of how um, an individual who who's, whose expertise is valued can build off of that and, and grow something on their own.
1: Mm-hmm. And would you say just that individual... It seems to me that they would feel really proud of the work and just really like excited about what they're doing rather than you know just you've you've been able to give them a venue or a place to just be celebrated and use their um strengths rather than you know highlight the negative which I do think we tend to do in communities um I work with this group um called the Montana Institute And they have a project out there around ACEs. They did a study called ACEs with Hope. And they talk about how with all the ACEs, that's adverse child effects. And that's just a big buzzword, I guess, out in the community right now, talking about just the different traumas that people have gone through and how that negatively affects their health. But the study talks about how when you point out all of the strengths that an individual has and you begin to build on those and just talk about somebody... Um, in light of their strengths, rather than all the trauma that they've been through, just what a difference that makes in that individual's life. And I, I really think it's, it's definitely takes practice for communities and for people to do is just look for strengths and look for the positive, especially when so often in the media and with our culture and social media, you name it, we're constantly bombarded with the negative.
2: Yeah, I think I think words matter, language matters, and how you frame something is important uh, to how it's received. And I think the the better we can get at focusing on assets and the strength that individuals and communities have, the better we will be at just conquering some of the the more challenging challenging spaces that we have, whether it's. You know, locally or um, at the federal level, I think that you know there's a lot of negativity right now, and not enough focus on what is is positive and encouraging.
1: When you think of framing things different, what what comes to mind, or just something that people typically don't frame, and that could be reframed the right way?
2: Well, I think that's actually interesting. in thinking about just like the frameworks that we use. In our coalition work and community organizing, there's so many different frameworks and people pull and adapt um, to the to the to the work that suits them or adapts the framework in the way that suits them. Um, and you know, there are so many different ways of approaching organizing. And for me, I definitely believe in using a health equity framework. Um, which to me means providing opportunities for everyone, no matter their gender, race, ethnicity, or whatever have you, um, and those opportunities to reach greater health. Um, and by doing so, I like to explicitly talk about the impact of, of racism in our, on individuals, on systems and structures in this country, and by acknowledging and trying to undo that as part of advancing health equity. And for me, like framing it that way as talking about why why um, something has been created um, historically, that it actually allows people to kind of detach from the individual struggles that they may have and really see this as a systems problem. Um, and by doing so, I think you start to realize like, oh, it's not just me. I'm not the only one struggling day to day to have my best life and to support myself and my family. But this is something that many people are doing. And by, by framing it that way, you can really create more unity and it can be a motivator to think about how do we really create change that is, is systems change and not just continually to work on individuals and saying that they're the problem. It's, it's a systems problem.
1: So good. One of the things that comes to mind when I think of systems problem, I heard an incredible speaker a couple months ago, and he was talking about the way we make medications in our country. So I am, I identify as a white female, and I have two little sons. They are ages four and three that both suffer with uh, severe asthma issues and breathing issues. And the trainer talked about the way that the medications are made in this country, how the gene pool for those medications, for asthma medication specifically, um, was 90% white. And then the people that the medication was tested on were predominantly white males. And so basically at the end, you have a medication that's made for white males. And talked a bit about the medication... Uh, being used in Hawaii, where 70% of the folks over in Hawaii don't respond to the medication for asthma that was created. And when people talk about systemic issues, he was just highlighting the fact that the way we make medications in our country, the way that we test medications, and that some of the changes that just maybe you wouldn't be thinking of um, if you weren't, like, if if. For my kiddos, they the medication works fine. It's something that I never even thought of until I heard the speaker. And he just began to talk about things that you could do uh, in your community to make sure that we have medications that are made for everyone, not just certain pockets of people.
3: That's a really, that's a really powerful example. And I even think about it somewhat on a meta level about how coalition work is set up. So coalitions, many of them operate based on if it's part of your job description, you are invited into these spaces, into these statewide coalitions that are working on statewide legislation or thinking about systems change. But just like you started the episode, it doesn't always necessarily include those who are experiencing the injustice based on systemic racism, based on systems of oppression that um, are at the table. So they are systematically excluded because maybe they don't have a job title that has invited them into that space. So at Vital Village, we are constantly looking at what barriers exist to participation and how can we unlock those doors so that those who want to participate really can and how can we create the space like Jamia was saying earlier, where all voices are really valued and lifted up so that the authentic collaboration can really happen. And so that's that's using a parent-centered uh, or family-centered approach where we're looking at, do you have childcare for tonight? Are you choosing to attend be- whether you feed your family or attend this evening meeting? or are you going to be able to participate only if certain, certain other factors are um, figured out? So how are we, pro- maybe it's providing stipends for our community champions, making sure that there's childcare, feeding our participants, et cetera, so that we can reduce some of those barriers to participation um, so that even the coalition spaces and the community organizing spaces aren't leaving people out. It's interesting that you
1: say, too, about how challenging it can be when you feel like you don't fit. So, for instance, we had a woman come to a coalition meeting, and I just listened as everybody around the table gave their professional title. And when it came to her to introduce herself, she said, oh, I'm just a parent. And I thought, just a parent, you're, you're the most important person at this table. But just the intimidation from everybody around the room rattling off all the credentials after their name and then coming to her. She just really felt like, who am I to be in this space?
3: Yeah, we have um, an upcoming uh, leadership summit and we have a committee of community members and organization partners who are helping to influence the direction of, of our summit, which is October 30th. I don't know if this will be aired before then, but if you're in the Boston area, come come uh, to our leadership summit. Uh, but the committee said, we don't want any letters after anybody's names. In fact, we want people to identify what their expertise is and um, put those as ribbons that you can add to the bottom of your name tags. So we have activists, we have artists, we have student, we have investigator, we have all sorts of expertise that you can identify and add as many ribbons as you want, parent being uh, one of them. So we see all of those pieces. We, we really don't take off our hats when we come to a table, even if you're there with an organization, you're still experiencing the world at, with all the identities that you show up to.
2: And if I can also, I love just, that. Yeah. And if I can also just add or go back, sorry um, to the conversation around how medical research is framed is that, you know, it's even more important to think about how we build trust in communities because, you know, the history of research and, abuse and ethical violations against people of color and immigrants, you know, they don't trust and they don't want to share their genetic, you know, coding with researchers. And I think that's a whole nother conversation, but it really brings to mind, like, how organizing work is really focused on relationship building and process and not just outcomes. And a lot of times research is focused on an outcome and they forget about all the stuff that you need to get to that outcome, um, which is building the trust, which takes years. Um, And so I think it's important to think about how do we focus more on the process and building trust and having stronger relations and deeper relationships with the people that we work with so that we can advance health equity and and research is a part of advancing that.
1: That's true. I work in um, a school and one of the things I was talking with one of the teachers and he was just saying that so a a lot of the students at my school um, are Haitian American and they talked about how if they had a teacher that they felt like Looked like, spoke like, felt like them. They just felt like it was easier to learn from. And just because somebody they felt like they could trust. And I thought that was really interesting because um, I've heard... Just in some circles, sometimes people say things like, you know, it should just be on the data. Whoever has the highest score should be the teacher, whoever had the best, whatever. And you have to think of so many different things. It's really who is the community going to respond to? And sometimes that can look much different than any of us think of. Um, you know, it doesn't always have to be somebody who looks exactly like you, talks exactly like you, but it definitely has to be somebody that the community trusts, how does somebody go about being that kind of person that uh, the community trusts? What can people do um, to to be in that space?
3: Well, I think this, this is a bit um, how I approach it, especially as a white woman doing this work with communities of color, being consistent, um, knowing that you... Are representing a race that has done a lot of damage in communities, and being willing to put in the hours, the years of building trusting relationships, um, and knowing that you have an ac- you have access to resources, connections, funding, uh, information um, that is often permitted to you just because of your race. And so um, I see myself often as a cheerleader who has keys. I don't know how that was the image, but <laughs> that's what I often see myself as because I can be encouraging, like a, a, a very good listening cheerleader. So not not the one that yells all the time, but, the <laughs> one, <laughs> um, but also, uh, you know, I know that I've been invited to spaces just because of um, who who I am and my identities. And so how can I use that to also say, oh, actually, um, thank you for the invitation. But I know someone who has the experience and lives here in Boston that actually would um, be better for better suited for this role.
2: Yeah. And, you know, to think about it, you know, for those Haitian students, thinking about who they relate to I mean that's that's real that's their truth and that's their experience and just to, to any relationship that we all have you know it's easier to connect with people that relate to you that have the same experience same hobbies as you do it just means on the other end when you don't have those same experiences you have to work harder to build that relationship and it doesn't mean that you can't do it but it should be fundamental to you doing your work not just because you're a good teacher but part of being a good teacher or good at your skill or your subject matter but part of being a good teacher is building a relationship with students and so you might have to work harder to build trust with those students because you don't you're not a direct match with the identities that they that they're sharing or um telling you about and i just feel like that's why it is important to to keep building those relationships and focusing focusing on that and and i'm no way an expert on it but you know i always try to you know think about areas of difference understanding you know diverse cultures and and welcoming those experiences. And that that's kind of the first place to start when you're not in direct alignment with someone you're working with.
1: So good. One of the things uh, one of the teachers did, uh, she is a white teacher, and she, um, teaching the students, she really found out what things the students were interested in and what mattered to them. And I can just remember her going to some of the students' games over and over, and It makes me smile because she happens to be some of the kids favorite uh, teacher because she's invested the time in just going above and beyond to say you can trust me and I genuinely care about you. I'm not just doing my job, but I genuinely care about you as a person. And um, she's a, a favorite around here. It's really neat to see.
2: Yeah. And it's just, you know, connecting it back to systems. We like to separate like our individual lives from we like to compartmentalize things, but that's not really how it works. Like the same way you engage in your family or with your peers or colleagues, like that's just like a microcosm of the world. And so you want to continue to engage and build relationships with other networks. And so that same tactic of going above and how do you show up for other community groups, the things that you're not working on? How do you show up for other movements? Um, and support them in the ways that you can, and like that's how you build community and build um, a, a greater network to move some advance a mission forward.
1: That's super practical too, right? It's like if you want people to care about the work that you're doing, then you need to look around and start caring about some of the work that others are doing. Super practical um when you think about the role of white people in this work um what comes to mind?
3: Yeah, um, so I think the access uh, comment that I made earlier is really important. So um, as a white person, I look at what access and power and privilege that I have based on my identities and work to facilitate connections so that I can uplift and and work alongside leaders of color. I, I'm looking back at the phrase that Ayanna Presley said, those closest to the pain should be closest to the power. And if we're really to embody this, we must systemically shift the power of who is in the decision-making role. And this goes back also to what Jamia was saying about um, the community engagement continuum. The We all want to be the decision-makers, but for generations white people have been the decision makers and how is that an equitable space how are we actually looking at what we've done across history and saying well actually we we have not done good things the research shows it um all all the health outcome data that is is right in front of our faces education data it's not working so we need to actually look differently and see how we can do things differently. The last thing I I have to say too about this is that white people need to work together. So those who are doing anti-racist work, who are looking at um, community building, health equity, education equity, um, and who are really thinking about this in a way of shifting power, we can't be doing this alone either. Um, So we need to, Seek each other out. We can't seek, we can't look to the people of color in the room to educate us. We really need to do the education ourselves um, so that we are, when we're ready uh, to, you know, I also have to say like everybody's going to be on this journey at a different time. Um, It's not something that you can really just sit at your Thanksgiving dinner table and say, okay, all all my white cousins, you guys ready for this? Mm -hmm. Um, But we, if we all get there at the t- you know, we need to be ready to help and lift up other white voices who are doing this work so that um, we can work together and um, create space for uh, diverse tables. Um, one of the, uh, well, the Framingham mayor, um, Yvonne Spicer said, if you look around your table, um, what it, it's a good quote, hold on, just give me a second. Mary Von Spicer of Framingham said, um, if you look around your dinner table and everybody looks like you, you need to have a bigger table. So I think about just even what Jimmy was saying about the individual, how are you every day working to um, learn more about the different cultures that exist within your community and what the interests are of your neighbors so that when it comes to doing this work, it, it doesn't feel like a huge leap. It should be an everyday practice.
2: Yeah, and I just want to add um, and echo everything Erica is saying um, that it's just it is a commitment that like you have to decide that you want to do anti-racist work and you want to dismantle the systems that you had nothing to do with. But um, historically have really impacted people of color and, um, you have to, you have to work and sit in it and do that work. And it's, it's tough, but I think that that's the only way we're going to move things forward.
1: Where do you see leaders needing to make a change? Where do you see, especially in the coalition world, where do you see just some changes that need to happen?
2: I think that sometimes, um, coalition leaders or, um, just any type of movement leader can be very focused on on outcomes sometimes and not process. Um, I, I don't know if you've heard of Adrienne Marie Brown who wrote Emergent Strategies, but she really focuses on the fact that the world is always changing and that we need to be just better at accepting that change, adapting to that change and figuring out ways to understand how things are happening Um, organically or emerging from those changes. Um, And I think if we focus as as capacity builders, as facilitators of change, not the change, facilitators of the change, that we can really think about process um, and moving things forward that way. Um, And so to me, it's like, how can you be better at facilitating change? And to me, that means like getting more skill sets that helps makes you better at building relationships because facilitating change is working with different groups of people. Um, And, you know, that could be understanding trauma informed care that could be more cultural humility. It could be understanding anti-racism, racism, racism, and all the different frameworks. It could also be mediation um, and really trying to build deeper relationships because that's what all of that work is going to do. Um, And then just on the other side of that is like, don't stay too isolated in in the work that you're doing and in in the coalition or a movement that you're in, that you see the intersectionality between your work and the other movements that are happening um, because we're all connected. Like, you know, every member of your movement is a part of some other work and you want them to take what they're learning with you and go and bring it to somewhere else. So we continue to build that network and have more folks working to advance equity and, just in general, like a healthier life and um, uh, like a more liberated life when people feel like they can really be their truest and best self. The,
3: the, uh, one, one thing to contribute to that question is also as coalitions build momentum often we can rely on certain people to do certain things and so it's really critical to create leadership pathways even within the movements because um, this work is hard it's long you're not going to see the change um, overnight and maybe even within our lifetime and so we need to also create sustainability measures so that we're building the skills and the leadership um, within. Uh, So that looks like making sure that there's mentorship, um, which is something that we think a lot about within uh, the Vital Village Network, as well as um, thinking about the sustainability and the the self-care practices of leaders.
2: Oh, self-care is really important. I think that's all about sharing leadership. Like if you are not ultimately and the only one responsible for that, that there are other people within your group with other expertise, that it makes it so much easier to move things forward and feel like um, it's sustainable because you have built that leadership and you've identified those leaders and advanced them and supported them. Um, and then they also to, um, Erica's, you know, metaphor, they also start to have keys. Um, and they have access to things that you don't need to be the one with all the power. Um, and there's something very, uh, what is like, it's like a weight lifted to know that you're not the only one that holds the power instead of feeling like that's what you need to do. So that's like a shifted mindset. Like we sometimes think we need to have all the power, but we, we really don't like, other people should have power too.
1: If you think of any next steps, just someone listening to this says, I want to go out there and do things differently. What are just a practical next step that you would recommend?
2: Um, I I would actually work on um, creating a shared language and shared framework. Um, And so that means doing research and learning more about um, anti-racism where capacity building, um, you know, reading, doing readings um, of social justice movements and things like that, that that's really helpful in giving you more information. Information is power so that if you are able to gain more information through your research and share that, and also just have opportunity to reflect on what you're learning and building from other experiences that you begin to create a shared framework and understanding of what different terms means, of what it is expect, what the expectation is, and even more importantly, what the greater vision is—like what you're trying to really accomplish—and um, through that work of developing a shared language and framework, that you build, you're building trust and, and trust and deepening your relationships, um, and and just to continue to build, focus on the relationships that you have. Find, you know, either one or two individuals or one or two key partners that you can work with, and really try to strengthen that relationship with them. Um, we want to, we want to build a network. We want to build a movement and you have to start somewhere. So I would just think of who you can work with, who's in your circle or who you want to get to know better and figure out ways to meet with them, to get engaged with them. Um, and to really build that trust.
3: Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's about looking around you who's already doing this work, you may feel alone right now that you're ready to make change in your community, you have this idea, um, but really know that there are others uh, across the, the country, across the world who are thinking about this work. And so uh, you can learn from them, you can reach out to them um, and then you also have something to offer. So you can learn, but you also have something to Help you, you can also um, contribute. So I think uh, that would be my key next step is to seek out others who are looking to do this type of work and build the relationships with them so that you can contribute to larger movements.
1: Is there anything that we're missing? We're coming up to the end. And I just, if there's anything that we didn't get to that you were thinking, oh, I wish we had shared this, just anything at all.
2: I think we just have to, I don't know if I stressed it enough or articulated it this way, but we just have to be flexible and open to the process that comes our way. Um, You know, we have to challenge our own assumptions and the things that our own personal narratives um, and not think that that um, the, the group that we're working with is going to end in a certain way, that we are flexible with what the process is and what the outcomes may be. And that just doesn't include um, me as a, a, a facilitator or the coalition itself, but also people funding this work and the um, other supports within the organization Um, Because I think sometimes we're not all on the same page and we think something's going to go one way and it doesn't. Um, And if we're more flexible in that way, then we can um, see that the process is just as important as the outcomes.
1: So good. I really appreciated this conversation. I feel like I could talk for another hour because I wrote down more questions. So I hope that you both will be back on in the future. Uh, Because I still have more questions.
3: Yeah, we are open to working together, Amanda. Definitely.
0: Thank you for listening to the Organizing for Change podcast, where our goal is to empower coalitions, organizations, and individuals to bring positive change to their communities. To learn more about us or to get the show notes from today's episode emailed to your inbox, log on to our website. We hope you are inspired by today's show and keep up the great work. See you next time.